0: Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hi, everyone. It's Vicki Basilica from the ASHP section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists, and I'd like to welcome you to this special episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. Once again, I am excited to share some of the great clinical content that was a part of the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy this highlight and be sure to check back soon for more features. So are you tired of digging out from the opioid epidemic? Yeah, me too. Do you know, have you heard of providers that have all of a sudden just cut people off of their opioids because they just don't want to deal with it anymore, or insurance companies who won't refill a prescription because the MME is more than 100? Yeah, We see it all, don't we, both inside and outside the pharmacy. And tapering, no matter what the context, is fraught with anxiety and trepidation by both patients and providers. Good news is we now have multiple tapering guidelines that offer recommendations on general practice. However, none of those guidelines address the palliative care population because really, why would we need to do that? What we're gonna do today is take you to a place that might make you very uncomfortable and talk about maybe making tapering the right therapeutic option for some of our palliative patients. Wait. Did I just say tapering in palliative care? Oh, surely I couldn't mean that. Yes, in fact, I do mean that. Uh, We chose this topic of addressing tapering in this population because previously it's been unheard of, and yet on a day-to-day basis, it's becoming part and parcel of our palliative care clinics. Since there really aren't any guidelines, we're going to show you the data and talk about some possible plausible scenarios for a given patient. Dr. Colgren actually works in a clinic that manages these patients, and he's going to share some of his experiences with that. But first, let's see if I've truly lost my mind. So sometimes we're victims of our own compassion. For years, I've seen and heard oncologists who are providing patients with these, you know, just-in-case prescriptions. I call them uh cancer care packages uh, that are filled with lots of little pharmaceutical goodies like opioids and benzodiazepines and antiemetics, you know, just to prevent hospital admissions and do better home care management, however well-meaning. The practice of giving the opioids and the benzos and so on, you know, there's no indication for doing this and it really violates our oath to do no harm. And this is just many of the reasons why I've got the gray hair. Interestingly, there have been some papers published recently that look at opioid misuse and abuse in a palliative care clinic setting. The first one was by Childers and colleagues, and he looked at their palliative care clinic at a major cancer center. And these were patients who were either actively involved in receiving cancer therapy, they were patients with non-malignant pain, or they were patients who were post-cancer care and had pain. What they found was that almost half of them had positive scores on the SOAP short form, which is one of the assessment tools we use to look at risk of opioid misuse and abuse. 15% had positive CAGE scores. and While less than 5% of those patients actually had a urine drug screening done, of those that did, more than 50% had abnormal drug screen results. There was a second study done in a cancer center, also in a supportive care clinic, and they noted that almost 20% of their patients had positive scores on the SOAP14, which is just a different version of that form, and 10% had positive scores on the CAGE aid tool. So the risks are there. And the results are pretty telling. So is it ethical to taper these patients? And are we monsters for even considering it? So first, let's take a step back. It's always important to point out that palliative care is not hospice. Palliative care covers a whole spectrum of treatment from patients that are, you know, with a potentially life threatening condition that are being treated with significant therapies that cause great distress. And then there's those patients who have significant but stable disease, and then there are those who have progressively worsening diseases, and they're probably going to graduate into hospice for end-of-life care. We see the whole spectrum. Another point here that we want to make is that we're focusing on a lot about cancer care, but not all palliative patients have cancer, and not all of the non-palliative patients well, they don't have cancer. They might be using opioids. So we have quite a mix of patients who in our practices that actually do use opioid medications. They're not just cancer patients. And don't forget that cancer patients can still have adverse effects from opioids. And sometimes it's even more significant because at baseline, these are sicker patients. So we need to, you know, treat ourselves, not treat ourselves, treat the patient, not ourselves and do no harm to ourselves or our patients. So this is just a little history lesson on the guidelines. I wanna take you on a brief journey. So back in the day, like before 2000, uh, tapering was pretty much uh, for patients that had addiction or the opioid use disorder setting. And the objective there was to detox these patients off of those opioids or get them converted to methadone for maintenance therapy. And the method was basically to convert everything to methadone or another long acting agent. And then came 2005, when Hurricane Katrina devastated the Gulf Coast, and we ended up with every kind of medical emergency you can imagine, including patients who were taking chronic opioids that had no access to a- supply. And then there was a huge number of patients that are in opioid withdrawal. So about that time, there was a multi-organizational working group that put together some recommendations on how to manage this type of crisis. Shortly thereafter, in early 2006, I also published on this, but I included some tapering recommendations in general care because it's not just patients who are in a natural disaster situation who might need some opioids. So anyway, this day and age, right, in the 2000s, we are now focusing more on our chronic pain clinic patients or our acute post-surgical pain patients. And our objective then is not necessarily to detox these people, but maybe to find the lowest and safest effective dose. And that might mean that we go to zero. Uh, It might not, but that has to be on our radar right? And our method is basically we either rotate agents or we might convert to methadone, but methadone is not everybody's wheelhouse and it can be fraught with a lot of dangers and it may not be appropriate for every patient. So we have to be flexible with regard to how we approach these patients. And then in my clinic, particularly if the patient is taking both long and short-acting opioids, we do ask the patient which they would prefer to to taper first, the long acting or the short acting. I promise you they have an opinion and we just roll with that. It's never wrong to include the patient in the decision-making process. What we know is that with increasing opioid doses, there's an increase in NMDA receptor activity. There's upregulation in dynorphin and glial cell activation, and all of this causes more pain. Therefore, opioids can cause more pain. I cannot turn down the opportunity to strongly encourage protection of glial cells. Here we see the cute little glial cell, right? These guys make up about 70% of the nervous system and many things activate and agitate these poor little guys. You can see on the left the immune system contributes inflammatory mediators like prostaglandin and nitric oxide. And on the right, we get stimulation from the nervous system, the primary afferents, which contribute substance P, ATP, excitatory amino acids. And this causes these little glial cells to swell. And they end up releasing a whole soup of mediators that basically perpetuate and enhance this whole cycle. Guess what? Opioids do this too. So, we explain all this to our patient and she's like, yeah, you know, I understand that, but I really don't use the opioids to get high. I just use them, you know, to make me feel normal. And, you know, I can't get out of bed if I don't take them. Oh, so is she having, uh, what is going on with this? So with the pathophysiology, of, of this, she, we see in all kinds of patients that as we start using opioid medications, we do get a little bit of feel good. They make us comfortable. They make us happy. They make us warm and fuzzy, those types of things. But as this process goes on, there's a shift so that when we don't use this, the opioids, we actually get a great deal of discomfort and we feel yucky. And we feel sick and we have more pain. Not that it's physiologic pain. It's the central nervous system is causing pain. And then that, you know, tells the patient to take more opioids, right? So, and then the opioids then are treating the negative effects of this cycle and this process. And so, you know, these patients, again, tell me they don't take them to get high, but they feel bad when they don't and they have more pain. At lower doses. So physically, they're not having this pain. So if she's not having physical pain, what could she be having? Oh, hyperkataphia. What the heck is that? Right? So kataphia is a Greek word that means uh, a strong emotional negative state. With long-term use of opioids, the balance, like I said, shifts from comfort to more discomfort in the absence of the opioid. And this is a driver for some patients with substance use disorder, and it drives dose escalation. And when we taper or reduce the positive effects, or we actually cause more of the negative effects, and they have increasing levels of pain again, they're not necessarily physical, but the nervous system is telling the patient. So let's consider the situation. Her scans are clear, so we're looking forward to better function and a better quality of life for her. It's been shown that opioids actually don't provide any relevant pain relief for chronic low back pain. It's been demonstrated that pre-op opioid use, like she had, results in more pain after surgery and worse outcomes. I can tell you, I see this on a daily basis. Her history of polysubstance use and opioid use disorder, plus her present behavioral concerns are possibly a safety risk. And there was a review by Fishbane and colleagues that found that 80% of a bunch of studies they did a meta-analysis, 80% of the studies they looked at with opioid tapering, and by the way, almost 63% of the patients across those studies actually had improvement in pain when their opioids were tapering. Can you get where I'm coming at now? So we might be able to actually improve her pain by reducing her opioid dose. So, have I convinced anybody? Any of those naysayers out there that didn't wanna, didn't wanna taper? So how fast should we go, right? There's, there's no standard for the speed of the taper. This has to be patient specific. Based on the fact that the longer the patient's been taking opioids, it probably means that we're going to have to do a slower taper as well. I mean, that's just kindness and also hypercatephia and all. I mean, let's be gentle with glial cells. Let's be gentle with the nervous system. And if we're not in a hurry and safety is not paramount, let's be nice instead of being mean. And we don't need her in the ER, right? If we taper this too fast, she's either going to turn to the street and phone a friend, right? Or she's going to end up in the ED or dead. So, we typically choose in this situation a slow taper, right? If the patient, particularly if the patient has cardiovascular or psychiatric comorbidities, and if the patient requests a slower taper because they're anxious or afraid or something like that, that's reasonable. Progress is progress no matter how fast you make it. And then we typically will reduce by anywhere from 5 to 20 percent every one to two months. Just depends on what the patient's comfortable with and what we think is going to be sometimes convenient and sometimes safe. The fast tapers are usually used in patients with an eminent safety concern or illegal activities. So this might go as fast as reducing by 10 to 20% per week or making a big jump initially with the first dose and then 10 to 20% each day. I would not be comfortable doing this and in the outpatient setting. Most of these patients, again, if, if safety is imminent because they've had an overdose or something like that, they're going to be in a monitored inpatient setting anyway. So the next step is once we make that first dosing reduction, right? we then need to reassess and possibly adjust. And you can see on this diagram, I know it's busy, but on the right hand side, it's where the benefits really outweigh the risks. So we document the heck out of it and we continue to reevaluate those risks and benefits. On the left side, you can see where the risks actually might outweigh the benefits like it does for LW. So then we do some education and discussion. We have the patient be part of this discussion and then we try and get those opioids tapered down until the benefits do outweigh the risks, or maybe she's off them altogether, and then the benefits definitely outweigh the risks. If she's not able to do that or stick with that tapering regimen, we're probably going to refer her to an MAT clinic so that they can evaluate for opioid use disorder. So this is really interesting. Probably, as I mentioned, the most difficult part of tapering is having that discussion with patients, right? So this was a survey that was done with primary care providers around uh, Colorado, different settings. And they asked these groups, they were focus groups that they asked, and they asked them to assess their concerns about discussing and implementing opioid tapers for patients on long-term therapy for chronic pain. And what they found was that these providers were usually identifying people as possible candidates for tapering if they had evidence of high-risk behavior. They had very serious adverse events or crisis, or there was an opioid-related adverse effect that they weren't tolerating, or maybe the patient chose to do that. The barriers that they perceived were... An emotional burden for the providers because this is a heavy load to carry and it's very stressful. They really felt like a lot of them had inadequate training. They didn't have enough time. It takes a lot longer to tell somebody no than to tell them yes and give them a prescription. So it takes a lot of time, takes a lot of resources. And then they were concerned about the lack of trust between the patient and provider. What they seemed to think was helpful and facilitated this conversation was really emphasizing with the patient's experience, preparing them for tapering. So at one visit, they would say, okay, I think next time we're going to do just a little dose reduction on your whatever it happens to be. And so then when the patient came in next time, they might have been anxious, but at least they were prepared to take that step. They individualized their plans and they had supportive guidelines and policies. Of note... Clinical pharmacists were identified by these providers as a very important resource. Don't back off. Step in, sit at the table, help the providers get this done. This is not something you can walk away from. Thanks so much for listening in to today's episode from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. It's features and content like this that make the ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting the place to learn and to take your practice to the next level. Be sure to join us in December for more great clinical content. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes and download the episode transcript.